Hello and welcome to today's Perusia podcast. Uh, I'm Shabaraj, your host, and we are continuing the journey um, on the virtual pilgrimage uh, with Steve Ray, uh, the, the author, the creator, the brains behind Footprints of God. And we've been following his brilliant uh, series on Footprints of God. And you wouldn't believe it, but today we're in the season of Advent. And here we are. We're, we're so pleased to present you a live show with Steve. And we are up to Jesus, uh, the Word Became Flesh, in the series of the Footprints of God. So, hello, Steve. How are you going? Doing good. I think all the people in Australia are going to get sick and tired of me being on so much. Not at all. In fact, uh, the opposite, Steve. Uh, you're one of the favorites, and uh, we love uh, all, all of your contribution. Uh, you, you do so much for the church, and, and you've helped many of us. So thank you very much for your time all these well, months. It's fun. I enjoy being with you, Charbel. I love your passion and your consistency and what you're doing, too. You're getting the message out, and I'm just proud to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It goes two ways. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to, uh, you, you've inspired me uh, so much in that whole uh, pilgrimage. Uh, you, are the, you are the pilgrimage guy. Um, you are the pilgrimage guide. You are, um, and I encourage people to go on a, an actual pilgrimage with you um, next year. You've got quite a few coming up and we should uh, promote those. Uh, but you've been so gracious during this lockdown uh, to give us your time so we can do a virtual pilgrimage and um, being able to go through the series of Footprints of God. And would you believe it? Did you time this? I don't think we planned this, but... We got up to Jesus in this very season. So the, the, yep. the month of December, Jesus, yep. the word became flesh. So, so perfect timing. <laughs> sure is. It's a good timing to be doing Jesus right in the beginning of Advent. So, well, we got a lot of territory to cover. We've got to go yes. start all the way in the book of Genesis. Actually, we did that the first time, but we're going to have to kind of do a hop, skip and a jump through the Old Testament just to lay the groundwork. So yes, you want please. me just to jump in? Yes, please. Let's start from All the right. beginning. Um, you talked about, you, you did touch on uh, our creed um, and you show how we, uh, the full circle. So do you want to touch on eternity, creation and, and, and go back there? Yeah, I'm doing a, on a radio station here in the United States, I'm doing a weekly show on the creed and we're doing a clause each week covering one of the clauses because I have a new book out called The Catholic Faith, uh, an introduction to the creeds. So they, I have two radio stations actually I'm doing that with. And when you, the, the creed is so well laid out. You have God the Father creating heavens and earth, and then who's up there with him in the heaven and earth? Jesus, the mm. second person of the Trinity who's been there since the the uh, since be ever. He's never had a beginning. He's been there from the very big all the time. It's hard to say from the beginning because with God it's eternity. He's been there from all of eternity. He is existence. So Jesus, the second person, has always existed. He had never had a time when he was not. So really, when we start the story of Jesus, that's where we have to begin. It doesn't begin in Bethlehem. That's way, way, way into the story. He starts out. You have four Gospels. I'm going to do this quick because we really don't have time. But we have four Gospels, and all of them are speaking of the genealogy or telling us something about Jesus's beginnings. Matthew, who is presenting Jesus to the Jews as their king, he starts out with Abraham, then goes to, all the way through to David. So he's going through the royal line. The genealogy of Jesus is he is the king of Israel. Now, the opposite is Mark, Matthew, Mark. Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant. And there is no genealogy. Why? Who cares where servants started from? Servants don't have genealogy. Just get to work. So Mark is presenting him as a servant. So there is no genealogy. He's just the servant coming down to serve. 
Now we get to Luke. He's presenting Jesus as the ideal man. So where do you go with that genealogy? He begins all the way back to Adam and Eve. He starts with Adam and Eve, had gave birth to Abel, you know, all the way down to Jesus. So he's presenting uh, the nativity of Jesus for the, for the ideal man, presenting Jesus that way. And so he starts with Adam and Eve. And then we come to John, who is the opposite of the ideal man. John's presenting him as God. And what's the, what is the genealogy of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, all from eternity, and the Word became flesh. So the genealogy given to us in John is that Jesus existed from all of eternity as the eternal Word of God. So you have the four different perspectives, four different uh, ways of seeing it. By the way, uh, Matthew, it, people will enjoy this maybe for Christmas, but Matthew is Joseph's story, his point of view of the birth, where Luke is Mary's point of view. And both of them have angels. Mary, the angel comes to her and Luke, but it says nothing about angels coming to Joseph. And the angel says, you're going to give birth to a son. And Mary asks questions, talk to the angel, get some answers and says, okay. Now the other story of the one of Matthew, now that's Joseph's perspective of the story. You hear nothing about angels coming to Mary, but you hear angels coming to Joseph. He doesn't say anything to the angel. He just does what the angel says. So you have the different gospels, which are all interesting. So the creed starts with eternity. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity, pure spirit, no body, in eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, no beginning. But then he comes down to earth and starts this big circle. The second person of the Trinity comes down to earth in the incarnation and becomes a man. We're going to be talking about that. Now, remember, Christmas is not the incarnation. Christmas is just where Mary introduced him to the world. The incarnation came nine months earlier. And if you look at the date of the Annunciation, it's nine months before Christmas. Nine months in the Annunciation, the, the announcement is March 25th, if I remember right. The announcement's made, Mary's pregnant. Nine months later, she's in Bethlehem to give birth to the baby. I love the church year. The yes. Catholic church year is brilliant. So then he's on the earth. He dies for our sins, goes all the way to hell. You can't get much lower than that to preach the gospel to all those down there who have been waiting. Then he comes back up, raises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. And now he's up there ruling. But he's going to make the circle again, isn't he? He's going to come back again at the end of time, raise the dead, get all of us to take us all back with him. So there's these two big circles that he makes. Now, in the middle of those two big circles, here we are now talking about Jesus and his life. But we had to start in eternity. We cannot start in Bethlehem. Now, the prophecies, real quickly, you, you got 73 books of the Bible. You've got all of these books of the Old Testament. You can't just ignore them. They're all telling about Christ. If you start the story of Jesus, you got to start in, he says in Luke 24, he's talking to the men on the road to Emmaus, and, he, and it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things that were told about him. So oh, wow. we're told now from the yes. law and the prophets, that's Moses and the prophets, all the way through the whole book. It's all about Jesus. So to start the life of Jesus, you got to go back and at least get a few tidbits, right? A few little tastes. Genesis 3.15, he tells the devil, I'm going to put enmity, hatred, warfare between you and the woman and her seed and your seed. That's Jesus. He's going to bruise your head. You know, you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. So Jesus's heel was bruised on the cross, but Satan was crushed 
on the cross at the cross. He was crushed. So that's all the way back in the book of Genesis, this prophecy of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, he tells us all this beautiful passage at the end of 52 and 53, all about he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted grief. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We had esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He's wounded for our transgressions. This is a prophecy of Jesus coming to the earth to die for us six, 800 years before it happened. So detailed so, as well. And how many Jews, Jewish people have converted because they all of a sudden had their eyes open to this passage? Mm. Yes, yeah, so true. He was given a grave among the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He shall bear their iniquities. That's all. Then Psalm 22 is also a messianic psalm. In there you see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus say that on the cross. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Oh, that sounds like just the gospel of the gospels too. I can count all my bones. They divide the, my garments among them and for my clothes they cast lots. Psalm 22, messianic psalm. Isaiah That's exactly 7. what happened. <laughs> it, it is. It's all prophesied. And John tells, John and Matthew and these guys they tell us that wow. as they're going through their gospels isaiah 7 14 a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall name him emmanuel god with us how can you get any more clear than that there's a whole bunch of them i'm just going to skip through micah chapter 5 verse 2 i'll sing the first line of this one. Oh, little town of bethlehem that's that verse that song comes out of Micah chapter 5. Oh, you Bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come the ruler of all of Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days, which is the way the Jews referred to eternity. So here you've got really quickly the whole Old Testament predicting, prophesying, telling us that this Messiah is going to come, the king, he's going to be the ruler. And so get ready for them. Now there's 400 years. We call it intertestamental in the middle of the two testaments. 400 years. Silence. God doesn't say anything. God's very quiet. Nothing. How long has Australia been a country? A couple of hundred years. Imagine for 400 years, they hear nothing from God. They're on his land. They have his temple. They're waiting for him. He's made promises. Where is he? Why are you silent? That's why the Pharisees start calling people to repentance and to doing all these traditions. And if we get back to the law of Moses, God, Jesus will come. I mean, the Messiah will come. Come on. You are all just being lazy. We got to get fervent. The Pharisees were good in their goals, just not in the way they did it. Mm. They were trying to get the people of God back to righteousness so that the Messiah could come after 400 years of silence. But in that testamental period towards the end, we have two key figures. One is a little girl, 15 years old, and the other is a hairy guy. He says that he is a hairy man. Other translations say he wore a hairy robe and he had a leather belt, which then points us back to Elijah the prophet. The last yes. prophet who spoke to Israel, Malachi, closes out the book by saying, I will send Elijah the prophet to come to prepare the way for the Lord. 400 years they've been waiting for this guy. They don't know. Is it the real Elijah who's going to come? Is there one somebody representing Elijah? Is he going to be in the power and the spirit of Elijah? What is it going to be? Now, why was John the Baptist teaching and baptizing at that point in the Jordan River? Because it was at that point that Elijah went up into heaven. And 
Malachi said that Elijah is going to come back down. So when the Pharisees, if you read back the Gospels, what did they say to John the Baptist? Are you him? Are you Elijah who's to come? He went mm. up from here. Did you just come back down? Like wow. Malachi said, when we take you there, I'll show you that. And you'll see why you'll understand the Bible so much better. Why was he there saying it? And why did they ask him, are, are you Elijah? Because Elijah is going to come back, it said. And he's going to, if he was taken up right from that hill over there. Are you him? Did you just come back down? Like Malachi said. Okay. So, and he's preaching the coming of the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his thongs on his sandals. That's down by Judea, by the Dead Sea from the mountains of Jerusalem. But up in the north in Galilee is a young girl named Mary, lives in a very rustic town, which we don't have time to talk about. We did that last time. Just listen to that video from last month. That's right. And the message is given to her. She's going to give birth to a son. So now this is the intertestamental period. Something's changing. Now we're going to move into the New Testament where God is going to make a new covenant with his people through their son. And so now we begin with the course with the Annunciation. That is the beginning of everything, not Bethlehem. We're going to start in Bethlehem because we already did that Nazareth yes. last week. But that's where everything starts. The incarnation, the enfleshment of God begins with the words of the angel in Nazareth. But now they have made a trek of 90 miles. They walk. 90 miles, nine, nine months miles. pregnant. Listen out there, all you women, my wife will tell you, having had four kids, that walking 90 miles at nine months pregnant is not the way she wants to go to have the delivery. There's no. better <laughs> ways to do it. So it's <laughs> amazing. I just like to make one comment. As they're going there, walking, they're going down the Hebron road. When you're with me in Israel, we'll drive down that road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Looking forward to that. And along the way, there's a tomb. I may have mentioned this last month. There's a tomb called the tomb of Rachel. And Rachel was yes. their great, 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 great grandmother for 1800 years earlier than Jesus and Mary and Joseph, 1800 years earlier than them. This story of the Bible is a long story. And she died in childbirth in Bethlehem. She got off her camel, gave birth to Benjamin, and she died. Jacob buried his wife off the side of the road and continued down to Hebron. You could still go in her tomb today, 4,000 years later. Do you think, For just think about this, Joseph walking past that tomb where his matriarch died in childbirth, and now he's walking down the same road, looking at that tomb, and his wife is now nine months pregnant, and he doesn't even have a place to stay to give her a decent place to give birth. And he, I think he must have been thinking, oh, dear God, please don't let happen to Mary what happened to Rachel. Wow, absolutely. Can yeah, I just comment there, Steve? Uh, what you, that, just that last little uh, segment you just mentioned, that's exactly what we're trying to do in this Advent pilgrimage that we're, we're in the middle of as we're filming this and uh, the last nine days is going to replicate what St. Joseph and Mary went through on their journey to Bethlehem. So it was that 90-mile that journey, and that's the, the Mexican tradition, Las Posadas, and that's where we're going to be sort of um, uh, getting closer to Bethlehem. But we've been journeying, and as we've been going all the way back from, from the Garden of Eden, and we, we're, we've been going through salvation history. And so this is fascinating and how these two ways of, of, of approaching Scripture, the Old Testament and now the New Testament, uh, and and Christ, the, the, the Word becoming flesh. It's just fascinating, the fullness of time. Here he comes, and uh, 
we're in the season right now to be talking about this. So it's just uh, quite beautiful. Yep. And you won't be able to understand this situation in Bethlehem that they went to unless you get on some stupid donkey and ride them through the desert. <laughs> and I've done okay. that more than once. Um, you say, well, Mary rode a donkey, so she was okay. No, you have to choose between riding a donkey and walking. That was her two choices. Almost walking would be better because donkeys are evil beasts and they try to bite you and buck you off. And uh, I had my battles with the donkey. So I, I don't, I'm not, I'm very sympathetic to Mary, no matter how yeah. she got there, 90 miles, donkey or walking, both are just as bad. But I think when they got to Bethlehem, there was a, a donkey traffic jam. Everywhere donkeys are, because if everybody from the tribe of Bethlehem that from that family clan had to come down there to pay the tax and do the census, it's going to be very crowded. That's why there's no room in the inn. It doesn't mean like they have a Holiday Inn or a Hilton Inn, but inns were usually rooms above a house where you'd let guests stay. And there weren't any of those there because everybody had relatives coming. Everybody had relatives showing up. And, and the Old Testament's full of talk about hospitality. So if your family or even strangers, you give them rooms. Well, they get there, Joseph and Mary, there's no place to stay. And they end up being in a main a place with a manger, which means that's why we know it's a place where animals are kept, because it says manger, which is a food dish for sheep. So here the virgin birth takes place. Mary and, and there's, a, there's a lot of discussion whether what the word virgin birth means, um, that, that the baby did not come out the birth canal, that he just the baby just kind of appeared on Mary's belly. A lot of people hold to that. Uh, they don't want to have the messiness of a birth through the birth canal. Uh, I am one who thoroughly believes that Jesus was born like any other baby was born through the birth canal. And it says in the Gospel of Luke that, Mary went to give the sacrifice for every woman whose firstborn son opens the womb. And I believe that, that, that the virgin birth was not about how the baby gets out. Virginity is about how the baby gets in. I mean, I, I think when you start talking to your kids about the birds and the bees, they learn that, that the virginity has to do with how the baby gets in, not how the baby gets out. But anyway, that's another whole issue. <laughs> um, and this is a family-friendly show here. So they uh, get a donkey traffic jam, don't have a place to stay, finally find a place uh, that where the baby can be born in a stable where animals are. And I have been to these kind of places, Charbel, they're still there. When you go outside of Bethlehem into the desert, out into the wilderness outside, there are still caves out there, lots of caves in the hillside, rugged territory, and the Bedouins live out there. And they live with their animals in the caves. Their animals live in the caves with them. They don't take baths out there. They, it's, you know, when we went out there to visit with them, when we were making our movies, they, they're giving us tea and wanting us to eat their food. And, you know, it just goes against all of our Western clean, germ-free sensibilities. And because uh, it's just not like what we're used to. It's rustic. Well, this is the kind of place where baby Jesus was born, in a very rustic place where animals are. And when you go in those caves out in Bethlehem now, out in the wilderness area outside of Bethlehem and Hebron, even farther south, all of those caves have a place where you could see a fire has been because they've had fires for thousands of years where shepherds take their sheep in there at night. And all of those caves have things on the ground that look like raisins, but they're not raisins. 
because sheep and goats have been in there. <laughs> if you don't know what they what they leave behind, you'll That's get right. the joke if you know. So this is the kind of place, unsanitary, unclean, mm-hmm. where baby Jesus was born. And I like to say that the first thing that uh, Mary laid him in a manger. How many mothers listening now, the first thing you do is wrap your baby up and lay him in a food dish an a- where animals eat. I don't know of any woman who's done that, but I think Mary is making a point right from the beginning that she put him in a food dish because he is going to become our food. We're the sheep of his pasture and we come to the food dish to eat. So when I see the altar in a Catholic church, I see a manger with a baby there saying, here's my body to eat. See, Uh, I I think we need to read the Bible that way. Oh, and another thing too is why were the shepherds I know we got to get out of Nazareth here because we got a long way to go, but why was it that the shepherds were the first to hear about the birth of Jesus? They're the lowest on the economic scale. They're not the rich people. They're out with the animals. They're filthy. The Pharisees wouldn't even talk to them. They're filthy people of the land. <laughs> get away from me. So, But why did the angels come there first? Why were the shepherds the first to know about the birth of Jesus? Because shepherds are always the first ones to know about the birth of a lamb. And Jesus is the lamb of God. You know, the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation has a lot of names for Jesus. It calls him the lion of Judah at one place. Mm -hmm. But 31 times, more than any other title or name, Jesus is called the lamb. In the book of Revelation, the end of time, 31 times, the lamb. And so... The shepherds are the first ones to know about the birth of a lamb. They always are. Uh, I mean, just saying just that one word, we take it for granted. But uh, uh, again, we, we heard of the word lamb back in uh, Isaac when you talked about that story going up the mountain. We've heard uh, St. John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus, the lamb of God. And here we are, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. It, it's just it's echoing over and over. He is that lamb of God, isn't he? It is. And, that's, you, and yet if you take... You just go to Mass. Say you don't know yes. the Bible at all. You just go to Mass and you hear the people say, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on me. You don't look at your wife and say, what the heck does the lamb have to do with anything? Yes. Like, <laughs> why do they talk about lambs taking away? So what's that have to do with anything? But if you understand the Bible, lambs were given as sacrifices as early as Abel, the, fa- the son of uh, Adam and wow. Eve, offered yes. lambs for sacrifice. The, the represent the innocence and so on. And then you have the Passover lamb, which is uh, the, the angel of death passes over because the blood is on the vertical and horizontal beams of the door. The new Passover lamb, his blood is on the vertical and horizontal beams too, but it's of the cross. See, everything yes. ties old and new. You can't, you got to have them both. Well, anyway, um, I, I do have to read this one line from Augustine. I love this. He meaning Jesus, was begotten of a father without a mother. In other words, from eternity. He was begotten of the father in all of eternity. There was never a time when he wasn't begotten. He was always being begotten from eternity. So he was begotten of a father in eternity without a mother. He was born of a mother on the earth without a father. Without a mother, he was God. Without a father, he was man. Without a mother... He was there before time began. Without a father, he was there at the end of time. Wow. You can meditate on that for a while. Absolutely. Anyway, I, oh. I 
that's uh, I love that shows you the just the complexity of who Jesus is. And it's stranger than fiction, but it's true. Okay. Yes. Now let, let's beautiful. go to his childhood. Okay. First of all, uh, they went to Egypt and back. They're a tough family. Mm. That's 250 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. I've been in the cave where they lived there. There's a cave oh, wow. that even today is a church. And there's a, a Sergius, St. Sergius, if I remember right. And there's a cave under there. And they said, that's where the Holy Family stayed. It was a Jewish community in Egypt at the time. And it's still a Jewish community with a synagogue today. Now they came back 250 miles from Cairo, Egypt to Bethlehem again, or Jerusalem. And then another 90 miles back up to their village in Nazareth, very rustic. Um, the, their family life, everyday Jesus, let's face it, we want to talk about his death and resurrection as ministry, but that's only three years, very short. His life was 33 years. Yes, we forget that. The, we're, with 30 years of his life, we don't talk about much, only the last three. So what about that big period of time, that 30 years? What do we know about him? We know a lot. We only know one experience, one story when they went to Jerusalem. By the way, they were pilgrims. We Catholics did not invent pilgrimages. Every year they went on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, singing the Psalms. Mm -hmm. The singing Psalms 120 through 134, they're called the Psalms of Ascent, of going up. The pilgrimage Psalms. And they would chant those together as they went. But they went up there every year. They would walk 90 miles to Jerusalem for the festivals and 90 miles back. So Jesus walked that route, we know, at least 30 times, yeah. maybe 33 by the time he was dead. So there we can learn a lot about Jesus. You can learn a lot by the land and the customs and how the buildings were built. For example, in Nazareth, they don't have many trees. What do they have? Rocks, lots of rocks. So when Jesus, they say that him and Joseph were carpenters, that Greek word is tekton, T-E-K-T-O-N. It doesn't mean working with fine wood like we think of. It means that they were workers of hard materials and in Nazareth, it was rock. They mm. have Jerusalem limestones. And even today, when you drive anywhere around Nazareth, you can see these hillsides where their quarries are set, where they're digging out with hydraulic equipment. But back in Jesus's day, they didn't have hydraulic equipment. They had hammers and chisels. And I think every day Jesus and Joseph went to Sepphoris, which was an hour walk away. I've run back and forth between Nazareth and Sepphoris just to see what it was like. Um, and they would have walked there and they'd give, be given a hammer and a chisel. And the union boss would point to a pile of rocks and say, go over there, guys. That's your job for the day. We need those shaped the, a cubit. A cubit is an arm's length from here to here is a biblical cubit. Mm -hmm. We need those rocks cut a cubit by a half cubit by a half a cubit so that we can put them in the walls. And we see the theater we're building over there. We need the seats and the walls and the flooring. So that one cubit by half cubit by half cubit. We need about 100 of those by the time you go home tonight. So Jesus and Joseph are out in the 100 degree temperature. Chink, 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 chink with us all day working. What yeah, a waste I'm of time. Up. What a waste of time. The son of God for 30 years, or well, at least until he was a teenager, out there working, chipping stones, flying everywhere, cutting his fly. I, I came home with a stone from Israel one time, and I wanted to break it into 20 pieces for a bunch of friends. So I went downstairs, took my big hammer, whack, I just whacked that rock, and it went flying all over. And by the time I was done, I had six places on my body bleeding because pieces of rock hit me and cut me. 
Joseph and Jesus out there 12 hours a day, chipping rocks, doing that. And I, I like to say, isn't it a waste of time? But the catechism says in paragraph 533, we learn three lessons from the school of Nazareth. Mm. Pope Paul VI, when he came to Israel as the Pope, was the first successor of Peter to come to the Holy Land since Peter. So for 2,000 years, Peter had never come back to his land. Peter went to Rome. All the popes were in Rome. Nobody ever came back except Paul VI in 1992. He's the first successor of Peter to come back in 2,000 years. And when he did, he called the hidden life of Nazareth, the school of Nazareth. And he said, we learn, I'll go through this quick. We learn one, the importance of silence before God, of waiting on God, of silence. We don't have to be doing stuff all the time. You can wait on God and be silent. You have the lesson of the family life, the importance of family life, and the lesson of hard work. Even the lesson, he said, of severe and redeeming law of human work. It's hard, but it builds character in us. That's why so many lazy, slouchy people with no character don't want to work. Character is built by hard work. Muscles, character, intensity, all the, the good qualities that we have, we get, we get a lot of those from working hard and being diligent. A lot of the virtues come from that. And before Adam and Eve sinned, they had to work in the gardens. Work was something God intended us to do even before the fall. Okay, now who taught, who taught God how to pray to God? <laughs> I think it's his father, right? The, the 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 foster father. Who taught the word of God to read the word of God? <laughs> the foster father. You know, we have to say foster father today because we're emphasizing the fact that Mary was a virgin. Mm. But it's proper to call Joseph the father of Jesus, even without the adjective foster or because even Mary said to Jesus, Why have you done this to your father and I? Yes. Yeah. When she found him up in Jerusalem and they, after three days, they found him. Why have you done this to your father and I? So Joseph was his father legally. He was the father of Jesus, but it was illegal because obviously there was no sexual relations that brought him about. So Joseph, when you hear Jesus telling his parables, did you ever think that maybe Joseph taught Jesus those parables? Never thought of it till you just mentioned it then. And, and There's no reason to think Jesus came up with those. If Joseph was a wise man and knew the culture and knew the stories and knew the Old Testament and knew the real lessons of life and the natural law, my dad would not buy me a television when I was a boy. My dad read me stories. My dad mm -hmm. made me made up stories for us. We'd go for long walks in the woods and my dad would just start and he'd make up a story. He made up one about a big snake and, and he scared all the people in the village. And one, one time a guy was so smart, he went and got the snake to lose his temper. The snake got so angry, he tied himself in a knot so the guy could go up and kill him. My dad says, don't ever lose your temper. People will get the best of you. If you lose your temper, you tie yourself in a knot and you do stupid things and the other side will always win. Never lose your temper. Keep your cool under any circumstance. My dad told me those stories. What do you think Joseph did with Jesus when they walked an hour to work every day and an hour back? He told Jesus stories. Those yeah. parables that Jesus told, my gut tells me 
Joseph told him those parables. He learned them from him. Joseph was, by the way, a tough guy. Working with rock, we, we always see pictures of Joseph and Jesus kind of very nice with a flower. Yes. Looky <laughs> soft. Don't even, oh my goodness, so such a soft skin and beard. I don't like those images of him being effeminate. Joseph was the toughest guy you'd ever want to confront. He could pick you or I up in just a second. He could pick us right up off the ground and throw us over a fence if he wanted to. This was a muscular, yeah. strong example of a manly man that he gave to Jesus, not the effeminate sissy that we see so often in churches. Now, I understand why they make him like that, because said he's a righteous man and he's kind of the quiet, silent, you know, type. Uh, but but at, in real life, he was a tough man. Him and Jesus, when they came home from work, they're covered with dust. Their faces were brown with the sun, wrinkled from the skin. They had camel dung between their toes. They had flies buzzing around their head, and they're covered with sweat. This is Jesus and Joseph in the real world. Anyway, that's the way Jesus lived for 30 years before he was uh, go starting out on his own ministry. I should point out, Steve, uh, it's interesting. Again, another God incidence, if you like, 150-year anniversary of St. Joseph as patron of the church um, declared officially. And uh, it was, it's been the year of St. Joseph for many dioceses in America. Um, thanks to Father Calloway really doing a great job there raising awareness of this, this great saint um, yep. with the 33-day preparation of consecration. So it's interesting uh, St. Joseph is... A lot of parallels here today. Absolutely. <laughs> One of the things I like to do when I go to the Holy Land is that here in the United States and in Australia, we're dealing with atheists and skeptics, and we're mm. always defending. They accept the fact that Jesus existed. Any, only a fool would say he didn't exist. He, it's, he's an historical figure. But we're always defending his divinity. We're trying to convince people that he was divine. He was God. When I'm in the Holy Land, I'm with people who already know he's God. The people in our bus, they know it and they can defend it. But I like to teach them about the humanity of Christ. The mm. two great heresies, one said he was God but denied his humanity, the docetists and the Gnostics. And the other side said that he was a man but denied his divinity. They were the Arians. That's right. I like to say, okay, you guys on the bus, you already know Jesus was God. I don't have to convince you that. But while we got you here in the Holy Land, I want you to understand his humanity and what he gave up to become one of us dirty little people walking around. We don't even have wings. We can't fly. We have to go step into a bush to go to the bathroom every morning. Jesus and the 12 guys are walking along. And the Old Testament phrase is to step aside. That yes. means to go to the toilet. Jesus and his guys are going along. And one by one, they'd say, oh, I'll catch up with you a minute. I have to step aside. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who lived in the glory of heaven without a human body, came down and became a body like us, a human. And he had to step aside into the bush every day. He didn't have a nice toilet like we do. And I like to ask people, what's the first thing the Holy Family did every morning when they woke up? People said, oh, they prayed. And I said, is that the first thing you do in the morning? Uh, no, we use the bathroom, I thought. So that's what the Holy Family did too. Anyway, so this is their early life. Now, there's a cave in um, Nazareth. And it's uh, the Franciscans have, when you go down there, they, this is the cave where the Holy Family lived for those 30 years. You can see down into it. You can't go in it anymore. I've been in it. If you want to see it, go in my Jesus movie. I take you in that cave, but you can't go down there except without special permission. My permission was $200 bills. That's what got me in there. 
So I just kind of pulled him out of my pocket and did this. And the guy says, okay, okay, quick, quick, hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> so I went down there and got the video of that. But um, they had the Franciscans, a plaque under the altar in that cave. And it says, he submitted to his parents here. Because after they came oh, back from yeah. Jerusalem, when he was talking to the doctors of law, it said he went back and submitted to them. Mm. And so it says here, heek, H-I-C in Latin, heek is where he submitted to them. As a 12-year-old. Well, 12-year-old when he came back. Yes. Yep. I've heard yes. people say, it's kind of funny, when Jesus stayed behind, that was his one and only experience of teenage rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so don't read him that passage until he gets a little older. But um, this Jesus is fascinating, Stephen, and you're filling in the holes because we don't have details in Scripture of of from twelve year old to thirty year old. There's uh, this sort of uh, eighteen years of silence. We don't know much. But you're, you're, what you're saying is by visiting the sites and through the DVD and the, the movie that you created, you can put two and two together, and you can actually see. And what you've just done today is what Jesus would have lived like what the holy family would have been like what his daily life would have been his relationship with his father uh, saint joseph and it's it's fascinating to see this um come together um i i like to meditate on him like when i went yeah. running from ran from nazareth to sepphoris and back where they went to work and i ran from nazareth to cana where mary and jesus walked to the wedding and back i like to think what were they thinking what did they see what birds did they hear singing um what what did they wear on their feet? Did they have blisters like I do? Uh, you know, and you can learn by how we can know a lot by reading contemporary literature from those times, the Roman period and the Jewish period, and the Essenes had a lot of writings, what life was really like there. And another thing about those 18 years that you just mentioned is somewhere along the way, Joseph died. Mm. And Mary, we have devotions of Mary's, the sorrows of Mary, but she had a lot more sorrows than we realize. And we talked about some of them last month, but there was another sorrow, whereas Mary, Joseph is the love of her life. And, and you know, let's get over the idea that they just lived together as strangers or they weren't in love with one another. They didn't care about it. Yes, they didn't have sexual relations like a married, married couple do, but they were very much attracted to each other in the sense of personalities and enjoying each other's company, praying together, to discussing things together. Now, of course, whenever there was an argument or harsh words spoken, Joseph was the one that always had to apologize because he's living with two perfect people. But still, you know, if you... <laughs> But at the same time, Joseph and Mary would have been very good friends. They would have had a great, you know, lo love being together. So when, she, when Joseph dies, that's a moment of sorrow. Now she's left to raise this teenage boy herself. Or was Jesus in his 20, 25? We don't know. We do know that when Jesus was 12, Joseph is there. When Jesus is 30, Joseph is no longer there. So somewhere between that period, Joseph died. Because he would have been mentioned also at the wedding or at other times. He would have been wet. But right. you have Jesus somewhere along that line, Joseph dies. And he is known as the saint of the happy death. 
because it's presumed he fell asleep in the arms of Mary and Jesus when he died. And Could you beat that? <laughs> you can't yeah, top that. If you're going to go, that's the way to go. Oh, boy. So now he's 30 years old. And we're doing okay here time-wise. So yeah, so in this last minutes. 15 minutes will be great. Now he's 30, he's public ministry. This is going to get exciting as well. Now, most people know about this because we've read the gospel or heard the gospel so many times that we, we know a lot about this, but there's the baptism of Jesus. And people always say, well, why did he get baptized? He didn't sin. Yeah. Well, he did that to associate with us. There's a lot of reasons why he did that. I'm not going to go through my list, but he did it, first of all, as a prefiguration because going into the water represents dying and coming back is raising again. He's already telling us a prophesy that he's going to die. He's going to go die and be under the water and the ground and then come back to life. It's also preparing us for being born again through water and spirit. There's a lot of reasons for that, to associate with humanity. I love um, the prayer in Mass, it, uh, sanctifying the waters. Not so yes. he could be sanctified, but so he could sanctify the waters, which was Yep, that's another, another one on my list. And when we go to the Holy Land and you get a bottle of water from the Holy Land to bring home, to put in, in the water font when your kids and grandkids get baptized, you don't have to have it blessed. The priest, is mm. he'll say, would you like me to bless that? Say, no, thank you, Father. The high priest already did. By <laughs> set, setting his feet in the water, this water of Jordan is perpetually holy water. So wow. just a little nice little note. He moves, uh, he goes in the wilderness and um, he's tested by the devil out there. Now, I know that the Pope wants to change the reading to say, doesn't like saying that, uh, that he uh, lead me not into temptation, that he said God doesn't lead you into temptation. Let's say that he doesn't abandon us to temptation. But in the scripture said, Jesus was led into the wilderness by who? The Holy Spirit. He was mm -hmm. driven into the wilderness to be tested. Doesn't mean tempted by sin, but the word test and tempt are the same word. So test, a temptation is a test, a moral test. So he, Jesus Good was point. driven out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And so the way the prayer is in our liturgy is correct. It, it doesn't need yes. to be changed. I have a whole website blog on that if people want to argue with me about that. Now We'll put that link in the comments below uh, straight okay. to your page. Yeah, go on my blog and search for temptation, and you'll see the blog post, and then you can put a link to it. Excellent. Now he, he, after this, he goes back to Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah about how this has been fulfilled today. Isaiah about, has been fulfilled. In other words, he's claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And they said, what are you talking about? Show us your hands. And Jesus holds out, look at, they're all calloused. You're a carpenter. What are you saying? You, you have the fulfillment of this come down from heaven. And so they get so angry at Jesus. He's lived with them for 30 years. He's one of their neighbor. This is a small town of 250 people, but they're so incensed by this. They're so angry. They take him to the cliff and they try to throw him over the cliff and kill him. And it says he walked through their midst. I love that passage because you can just see him whether it was a supernatural thing where they just all fell down like in the garden of gethsemane it says they all fell down or whether he was just a manly man and just walked through the crowd i don't know which i like thinking he just walked and just kind of boom you know plowed <laughs> his way through uh, it's fascinating uh, steve that that scene um because that he would have read the scriptures i presume it would have been in hebrew right and and he's made it very clear that he is the fulfillment of that scripture so three things, and and unfortunately, uh, some um, some academics today uh, deny that Jesus uh, 
could read, could read Hebrew or speak Hebrew and, and even claim to be God. And, so, and I think in this one scripture alone uh, just debunks that thought. Um, very good point. Because very clear. Yep. So he's arguing with the doctors of the law, but he can't read at 12 years old. <laughs> it's just uh, amazing. Mary knew her scriptures too. She sang the Magnificat, yes. which is a recrafting of Hannah's Magnificat in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel mm. chapter 2. These people knew their Bible and they knew how to read. Although there was in that period of time high illiteracy, there's okay. every reason to believe that the Holy Family and Peter, even though it said that they were they were uneducated men, that just means that they weren't trained in, as doctors of the law. It doesn't mean they were illiterate. Mm -hmm. so, okay. Um, one of the reasons that they opposed him and the Pharisees also were against him is because the Bible, Old Testament, says that God is not a man. It also says that no man has ever seen God, nor can you see God and live. Even with Moses, it said he only saw his backside. They saw kind of his oh. rear end as he went by. And so they say, well, wait a minute. How can this be God? You make yourself, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. They knew exactly what he was claiming, but they said, you've got flies buzzing around your head. You've got donkey poop between your toes. You've got perspiration and you are telling us you're God? No way. And he also got mad at Jesus, which leads up to the crucifixion because it was political. This wasn't religious as much as it was political because they controlled the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They controlled the people. They had the Sanhedrin, which was their religious and secular court. There was no difference between church and state. It was religion, and the religion was the government at the time. And the court, which was the Sanhedrin, was the religious. It was made up of priests and scribes and so on, and Pharisees. So this was secular and religious combined. And they are furious at him because he's in Galilee walking around with 5,000 men, but that translates into 20,000 people when you consider servants and children and wives. There was, And that, we calculate pretty much that makes up 90 to 95 percent of the whole population of that area. So they have all left the synagogue. And there's the poor Pharisee and the scribe and the Sadducee sitting there talking to themselves. All the people have walked out of the synagogue. They're following this new rabbi. This rabbi speaks with one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He heals everybody. Quick, run to the nursing home. Get grandma. Bring her over here. Put her on a pallet. Let's get he heals all of her arthritis and her heart problems. Grandma walks back home off the stretcher. Go get everybody's bringing thousands of people from all over. And he says he healed all of them. Can you imagine? Of course, you'd go get your grandma and bring her. You'd go get your uncle with the, you know, the problems or what, and bring him to this rabbi. The other scribes and Pharisees, they can't do a damn thing. This guy heals everybody. Plus when we're out in the wilderness and hungry, he gives us bread and fish. How did he do that? I don't know how he did it, but let's make this guy the king. Well, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to hate this guy. This is mm -hmm. political. The They're going to try and embarrass him in front of everybody, trip him up and make let him make a fool of himself. But he always gets the best of them. Just the example of the coin. Should we pay yes. the tax? He says, whose image is on the tax? Caesar's. Then who does this coin belong to? It has the image of Caesar. Therefore, give it back to Caesar if he tells you to. But whose image is on you? You were made in the image of God. Therefore, give to God the things that are God's. You are in his image. 
well, they didn't want to hear that. So anyway, they, they hate him. And now they bring him to the point where they're going to crucify him. So real quickly, the journey yes. to Jerusalem starts all the way in the north. And we'll go there with you when you're there. Caesarea Philippi, right on the Lebanese border. You will look across to your homeland. I promise we'll stop there so you can get off the bus and take pictures, all the people there. Because I know we'll have a lot of Lebanese on our Australian <laughs> bus in, 19, um, in 2022 or 2023. I don't remember. But we 2022. But That's we'll right. stop so you can look there. And there's landmine signs with skull and crossbones. You know, the landmines are there because when Syria and Lebanon, they had their wars, they mined all of that area. But we won't go in that area, I promise. And <laughs> so he starts way up at the Lebanese border at Caesarea Philippi. And we'll talk more about this next month with Peter. And he says, you are rock. You are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And I'll describe next time all of the geographical why it is that's that geography tells the whole story of the papacy being formed. But the reason he starts there is because he knows he's going down to Jerusalem. Now, I say down because I'm thinking south, but for them, it's up because it's into the mountains. And Jerusalem's the highest place on the face of the earth. So you're always going up to get there. So you, they are there. Now he is appointing his royal steward who's going to be in charge of his kingdom. They've been with him for three years now. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. So it's important that he sets up the, the authority structure for his new city, his new ecclesia, church. Church isn't just a bunch of us patting each other on the back. Hey, brother, you love Jesus. Hey, me too. We're the church. No, no, no. The church is a civic institution. It's an organization with courts and its own Sanhedrin, everything. It's another whole talk I give on that. But he's setting up this new government that's going to be the head of his church. He starts the journey south. They stop at Mount Tabor, which we will have our first mass there at the wow. top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they get a glimpse of who he is. Only the three of them, Peter, uh, James, and John. I think if I was the other guys, I'd be jealous. Well, how come I didn't get to go? How come those guys always get to go do this stuff? How come I never get to go? You know, they had jealousies there. James and John said, well, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. Not Peter and Andrew. We want to sit on your right and on your left. So there was a lot, you know, there was friction among these guys. Jesus is always saying, come down, you guys. Stop it. Break it up. No more fighting. <laughs> you bunch of kids. Well, they get to, they have this experience and, and this is all based, what happens on Mount of Transfiguration all comes from Mount Sinai, but we don't have time to do that. So then they get to Jerusalem and then we have the whole Passion Week. And I do sometimes a whole hour just walking through Passion Week, that alone, what it looked like at the time and what it looks like today when we take our groups through all of those places. But you start in the upper room and I know we got to hurry because we got to get to back into eternity here before I quit. So they, they have, he raises Lazarus from the dead and the Jews are so angry. They try to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence. Can you believe that? Amazing. Then they have Palm Sunday. Jesus enters on a donkey. Why? On a mule, on a donkey. Why? Because Solomon came into the city on a donkey to sit on his father, David's throne. Jesus is coming in and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were calling him. They knew he was the new Solomon, the new son of God, entering in on a horse like Solomon. They thought Jesus yeah. was going to take over and become the king, kick Rome out and set up the new earthly kingdom. But that's why he came in on the donkey, because he is saying, I am the new son of David, like Solomon did thousands years before me. Well, then they have the whole, uh, he gets arrested. He goes, upper room. Then he goes to Gethsemane. Then the 
Caiaphas. He gets put in prison overnight in Holy Thursday. I'll take you into that cistern, that prison where he was when we go there. Taken on the morning Friday to Pilate, whipped and beaten, taken on the Via Dolorosa. Oh, I wish I had a whole hour just to just unpack those. Calvary, the tomb, he goes down into hell to preach the gospel to those who are waiting, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, and David, and not Solomon, though. Solomon is never called a saint. We don't know what happened to Solomon. He went, he turned rogue. He turned pagan. He worshiped other gods, and there's never an indication that he repented of that, by the way. Scary time for Solomon. Then the resurrection, then 40 days he's on the earth. We're going to take you to those places where he went for those 40 days. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he ascends into heaven. And where did he go? It says he went up into the clouds. Where did he go? You have to go to the prophet Daniel to know. Prophet Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14 says that, um, that he, I looked into the clouds and I saw one like the son of man coming through the clouds. And he was presented to the ancient of days, which is God the father. And he was given a kingdom, which will have no end. When he disappeared through the clouds, he was taken back into glory. Clouds represent glory. And how are we doing on time? I got to quit. Yeah, we've got about a minute to go, but uh, this is fascinating. Okay. Now, from there. There's Pentecost, where the new body of Christ is born, right? Mary's at Pentecost. Why? Because she's the mother of the mystical church. The mother has to be there for the birth. Happy birthday to you. The church is born. Mary's there. Now it's the mystical body of Christ. We are his mystical body on earth. He is the head in heaven, and he's coming back to get us again. It's not over yet. He's coming back. Now, not the rapture. The rapture is Protestant heresy. Mm. Don't let anybody get you to thinking about the rapture. That's saying that Jesus Jesus is going to come back three times. He's only coming back once as a suffering servant and again at the end of time. He's not coming back secretly in the middle. This didn't begin until the 1850s. It's a false teaching. Do not fall for the rapture idea. And then Jesus is going to come back again at the end of time. We don't know when that's going to be. But the end of the story here is that he is now in heaven, no longer just a spirit without a body, but he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father with a human body for all of eternity. He will have the DNA of Mary. He will carry Mary's DNA for the rest of eternity. The catechism, and I'll close with this, henceforth, paragraph 663, henceforth Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Indeed, he's seated there as God, seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. So there we've done the whole story all the way around and all the way from when he le was in eternity from the very beginning, all the way around, all the way back up into eternity. And he's going to be coming back again to get us. So that's what we wait to see. Praise be to God. Wow. Thanks, Charbel. That was fun. Next time we'll do Peter. Yes. Looking forward to it. So that's January. We're looking forward towards January for that one. And, and this is so perfectly timed. Thank you so much, Adam, to Jesus. We just did it in an hour there. Uh, we just focused on Christ, the fulfillment of time. And, and thanks, this Footprints of God series. It is available. We are giving a 20% discount. Uh, look in the link below. Click on it. That's the DVD there that Steve is holding in his hand. And brilliant. Brilliant. I Get go your to all the it. places. All the places we talked about, we go there in this movie. We see them all. On location. Amen. And um, we are going on pilgrimage uh, in 2022. And yep. so more information, reach out to us uh, either at perusiumedia.com, uh, catholicconvert.com, and, and we'll, we'll be able to give you more information. Thank you once again, Steve. Uh, a blessed advent to you. And thanks for being part of this journey as well. It's been amazing. And we've got thousands around the world journeying up to Christmas. So 
Uh, I want to thank you for, for participating and being a major uh, part of this uh, pilgrimage. It was fun doing this, and it was also fun today doing Abraham as yes. part of the journey. So thanks. Talk to you later, Sharbel. Thank you. God bless you. God bless everyone, and have a blessed pilgrimage. Take care. Thank you.